Welcome to episode 356 of the Microsoft Cloud IT Pro Podcast, recorded live on October 6th, 2023. This is a show about Microsoft 365 and Azure from the perspective of IT pros and end users, where we discuss the topic or recent news and how it relates to you. Copilot and AI just don't go away. We're back this week revisiting some of the ROI of this service, as well as some updates around licensing with the upcoming GA of Microsoft 365 Copilot on November 1st, 2023. After that, we discuss some methods and challenges for bulk restores of items from the SharePoint Recycle Bin, as well as some upcoming changes to default outbound internet access for your Azure VMs. I need a co-pilot to help handle my calls. You need a co-pilot to handle your calls. Huh? Co-pilots for everybody, because they're coming. Prepare thyself. It's just money. So you say co-pilot for everyone. This is public enough. There's public blog posts out here. Copilot is not for everyone, Scott. <laughs> I am disappointed by this. I mean, we've talked about the pricing in the past. So, so yeah, there's barriers to entry. We talked about the pricing, but there's some new stuff. So Copilot for everyone, was $30 a user a month. It's expensive. I get it. I was willing... It is 54% the cost of your E3 license, if you want to think about it that way. Like, it is literally more than the cost of your E3 license to go and pick up Copilot. But I was willing to pay for it. I absolutely would have paid 30 bucks a month for Copilot, at least to start, to check it out. But then, some news started coming out is it's going to GA on November 1, and I got all excited. And then I started looking at more news about it, and it is going to GA on November 1, and you can go get it if you have an enterprise agreement and you can get your Microsoft person to go set you up with it, which I don't have. And if you're willing to spend, purchase a minimum of 300 licenses. Yeah, I was going to say 300 licenses or 300 seats. Licenses. Therefore, bringing you to, what, a cool, not 9K a month just to get started? 9K a month. Not for your little SMBs. 96. No. What is, my math is failing me. 9 times 12. 104,000? No. 90. 108. 108. Yeah, 108. $108,000 a year. For Copilot. Which remember, that's basically double the cost of what you had before. So <laughs> that is not double the cost of what I had before. But for those organizations that are coming in. That is like for those organizations, yes. It's another one. I don't have any like skin in the game insight here, but like from the outside, it's tough. It's a lot to swallow. You've got to do a lot of ROI justification. And I just wonder if people are like poking the bear poking at the market and seeing what it will maintain from a pricing perspective just to get it there. But you won't know. And I don't think M365 or O365 like even break down the numbers this way in financial reports or anything like that. What ARPU ends up, like revenue per user and margin ends up being like per user within those product segments. But yeah, now, that's funny, because somebody in the chat is saying their TAM assures it will save us money. There are no more TAMs. So if somebody's still calling themselves a TAM, hey, they've got to get their heads out of the sand because they haven't been a TAM for two <laughs> years. But that's neither here nor there. Yeah, it is a weird barrier to entry, too, in that, like you said, you have to basically be nominated in by a member of your account team. 
And at Microsoft, I, I don't know, like I, I imagine there's a whole gamut of folks who listen to this podcast and they're the enterprisey of the enterprisey. And they've heard terms like TAM and CSAM and they know who like their account executive is, their AE, like they've got all that stuff down or they, they've got an ATS and, and all that stuff running around. And they live in the acronym soup of Microsoft. The majority, the vast majority, especially like those 300 seat organizations that would potentially be eligible, they don't usually have managed account teams. They're not big enough to get there. It doesn't justify it from like a sales cycle kind of thing. If you've just come in and picked up 100 licenses, 150, 300 licenses, like you're still in the threshold of SMB versus organizations that are in multiple thousands. Could be like single digit thousands all the way up to 100,000 plus seats. Yeah, I was going to say Microsoft puts that just from a licensing perspective, they kind of put that SMB level at 300 because that's where you move out of the business into enterprise. But I'm with you. I work like some of my customers that are in those 350, 400 employees. I don't know that they necessarily have EAs or TAMs or account teams or all the different acronyms because at that level, they're still just going out and buying enterprises or going through a CSP or some of that. 100%. So yeah. They effectively become unmanaged accounts, which is fine in the grand scheme of things. And actually, I think for some of this, like that's actually okay. I kind of want to see what happens when some of the biggest of the big kick the tires and how that looks for them. And for the articles that are out there today about ways to think about justifying your ROI and your TCO with something like M365 Copilot, there's a lot of broad assumptions there because nobody has really been hands-on with it, I think, in the way that they're about to get hands-on with it. And that's going to lead to a whole bunch of interesting observations and conclusions, potentially six months from now. Like, I would love to see the industry reports that come out of like Gartner and IDC and others. After this has been out for a couple months, people have been hands-on with it. They've had a chance to effectively kick the tires and see what it can do for them. Okay, so this makes me laugh, Scott. We just talked about the 300 license level and the whole SMB thing. If you scroll down in that article from Schneider IM that you posted in Discord, we'll put it in the show notes, it's not every license is eligible for Copilot. Microsoft 365 Copilot is an add-on license. It works on top of the following. Microsoft 365 E5, Microsoft 365 E3, we knew both of those. Microsoft 365 Business Premium and Microsoft 365 Business Standard. Except that if you have business premium or business standard, the only way you're going to be eligible is if you have exactly 300 licenses because yes. it doesn't allow you to have more. <laughs> and less, and I get it, some people have mixed and matched, right? You could have 300 premium, 300 standard for your 600 users or have a few enterprise mixed in with your business premium. But it kind of makes me chuckle that 300 is the threshold and you can put it on these business plans, but most people that are at that level aren't on business plans because they get capped at 300. We'll see. Obviously there's insights from like the licensing side that or the licensing side that only the folks who run the service are privy to and they know their house their business and where they want to be with it. Yeah. I don't know. I still haven't had a chance to get broadly hands-on with it. Like I'm very much looking forward to seeing that roll out. I don't know how that'll go. Even at Microsoft, like as a Microsoft employee, do I get access to that? Well, I get GitHub Copilot, I have that, I get Bing Enterprise Chat, yep. all those kinds of things. 
are available to me today. I think one of the other things too is I wonder how many organizations sit down and look at, they look at maybe the raw cost of just chat GPT and going straight to open AI. Like, why wouldn't you give OpenAI 20 bucks a month to, depending on the functionality that you need, right? The following need is LLM without context. Like, okay, go ahead and save yourself 10 bucks a month and go over here and get this tool. I know a lot of conversations that I'm hearing are folks saying that part of the justification of the price is that you're staying kind of inside the four walls. So you're not just paying for functionality of a co-pilot and access to a large language model. You're paying for access to a large language model that has context and access to your data within a security boundary. And that's big for a lot of organizations. If you and I worked for two different orgs, we don't want to be just going off and firing off business secrets to chat GPT under whatever nebulous licensing it has given day of the week and learning those things and then surfacing them up to something I say to it gets surfaced to you or even worse, something we say to each other gets surfaced to somebody else. So part of it is just kind of covering your bases and making sure you've got that too. And I don't know how you quantify that one like that one feels very fuzzy <laughs> yeah and very like process regulatory driven those kinds of things so we'll see where that one falls out but the barrier to entry is definitely very high so it's a really weird gold rushy time right now i don't know it's the best time if you're like skittish and you're not an early adopter it's not the best time to dip your toe in you might want to like just take a step back and and see how it goes. I agree. And Sean said in the chat that they're including business premium standard. Maybe they anticipate lowering 300. I hope so. I was, I don't know. I could beat this horse for a while. That's probably not politically correct. But now you're talking about boiling the frog. That's politically correct. I'm surprised they're not pushing it out to smaller businesses because I feel like a lot of the SMBs are the ones that could benefit from this a lot. Like I could use it for summarizing my email, for doing some of that type of stuff. And to put the barrier to entry so high and enterprisey feels like they're missing a huge target market. And we've said it, AI is expensive. Maybe it's just the pure expense of they can't afford the expense of all these five-person companies turning it on. They need some bigger commitments due to the cost of it. I was just listening to a podcast too. We had talked about it, I think a little bit last week, but it was after we recorded the Acquired podcast. And they did an interview, a three-hour, not an interview, a three-hour podcast on NVIDIA. And the cost of some of these servers and the compute from NVIDIA that I don't know that it was used to train Microsoft 365 Copilot, but that hardware from NVIDIA and training these models is, I don't know that I ever thought about the cost. It's expensive. Listening to the cost of some of this hardware from NVIDIA and what these companies need to train some of these models. You're talking like hundreds of millions of dollars just for the hardware alone, if not <laughs> uh, billions. Yes. In other news, supercomputers are expensive. That's my co-pilot news for the day. It's out there and kicking around. I mean, November 1 is coming up rapidly. So I think, like I said, the way I'm viewing this as hits November 1, nobody does anything in November, December anyway. It's a slow time, basically, worldwide. Folks come back, they start really kicking the tires in Q1 calendar year 2024. And by like 
March, April, May, June-ish time frame next year, I think you're going to see like a crazy number of articles start to come out that talk to ROI and TCO around LLMs like this, yep. particularly in the context of office work, right? Like in, in the M365 world, the other interesting thing that's going to happen I don't know if you watched the Google event from this week for they they did like hardware announcements for the Pixel things like that. But one of the things that's happening on that side is Google's been AI driven for a long time as well, but a little bit more on the consumer side of the fence. So they recently announced that their chatbot Bard is going to have access to Gmail and be able to interact with and pull that information in as well. So that was announced back in like mid-September a couple weeks ago. But if you have access to BARD today, you can actually go out and ask BARD to do things against the corpus of data that exists inside of your Gmail account, which lots of us have. I think I've had a Gmail account, maybe not when it was in beta, but like I remember getting one very early on. Like It's been out there for quite a while. So I have this large body of data that is now kind of sitting in Gmail that very much like an M365 co-pilot, I can point a large language model against it and say, hey, start to go figure things out for me. When's the last time that I met with Ben and talked to Ben about podcast analytics? And it can just go like figure that out and pull that information out. If you're if anybody listening to this, like you're looking for maybe some like real world anecdotes around Bard, I would recommend there's another podcast from the New York Times called Hard Fork, go give a listen to their episode on Bard and Gmail integration. The two hosts of that episode have also been Gmail users for a long time. So like their prompt and the results are kind of hilarious. Like, yeah, <laughs> you, you do have to go listen to it. But their prompt is basically, tell me what psychological problems I have based on my email. <laughs> and that's out, really funny. And go out there and figure it out. So that's a good one as well. I am sure you had Gmail in beta. Do you remember Gmail? I just looked it up. Gmail was in beta for five years. Oh, sure. Do you remember? <laughs> I remember that because it was so long. I was thinking like the earliest of the early days. I don't know. I'd have to go back in and, and see when my first message was there. 2004, it was released and it was in beta until 2009. I know that I've had Gmail so long that I had enough data in there, like before they even had paid plans, that I had needed to start purging data and getting so, it out. <laughs> I was because I was over the threshold for for data stored along the way. That's funny. Yeah, I'll have to go listen to that. I have not played with Bard. So I have Gmail. Yeah, I'll be honest, I don't use Gmail. I still have an account, but it is mostly junk mail at this point in time, which could be really funny to ask Bard about considering there is very little actual personal email in my Gmail account at this point in time. So this is going to be really interesting too, especially if Google starts offering Bard to smaller companies or if they start integrating it in with the G Suite. And Microsoft is stuck at this 300 user limit of <laughs> if that's going to affect like where SMBs go, I don't know. 
that's all speculation at this point in time. I think it's another valid thing to think about. So I think one of the other things that I've been keying on to is folks talk a lot these days about how much of big tech over the last couple of years has really been related to the phenomenon of having access to 0% interest rates. And it was cheap for everything. It was cheap to acquire hardware. It was cheap to acquire software. It was cheap to acquire people. So the, the whole people process technology thing where you were always trying to kind of balance those three different things, you really didn't have to worry about it anymore because people were so cheap that didn't matter. Tech was so cheap that it didn't matter. And now that those things matter, folks need to sit down and, and think about really like how to get the most of it and where it comes in. I don't know. It's going to be fun to watch from the outside, I think, is kind of my take on it right now. I agree. So with that, we can be done boiling the co-pilot frog or beating the co-pilot horse or pummeling the co-pilot something else. What else do you want to talk about? We had some news. We had talked about, I had mentioned I owed some people a SharePoint recyclement PowerShell update. Where should we go from here? Why don't we get through your update and then we'll see what else we can swing in. Do you feel overwhelmed by trying to manage your Office 365 environment? Are you facing unexpected issues that disrupt your company's productivity? Intelligent is here to help. Much like you take your car to the mechanic that has specialized knowledge on how to best keep your car running, Intelligent helps you with your Microsoft Cloud environment because that's their expertise. Intelligent keeps up with the latest updates in the Microsoft Cloud to help keep your business running smoothly and ahead of the curve. Whether you are a small organization with just a few users up to an organization of several thousand employees, they want to partner with you to implement and administer your Microsoft Cloud technology. Visit them at intelligent.com slash podcast. That's I-N-T-E-L-L-I-G-I-N-K dot com slash podcast for more information or to schedule a 30-minute call to get started with them today. Remember, Intelligent focuses on the Microsoft Cloud so you can focus on your business. We had talked, I think it was a couple weeks ago, it was two or three weeks ago, where I was waiting for a script to go run against the recycle bin. This is an interesting thing to think about because I've had this happen to me a couple times now. I was in a situation with a client and this was, in all honesty, self-incurred a bit. We had a power automate automation go awry that went in and deleted like thousands of files. So this was not just five or 10 files. It deleted somewhere in the realm of like 10,000 <laughs> files out of SharePoint. And fortunately for me, for them... When you say deleted 10,000 files, like somebody might want to delete in bulk a bunch of stuff, but in this case, not by design. A little rogue and maybe ran away because it was missing a conditional. Or It was by design that this is a little bit of a unique scenario with this particular customer and how they want to use SharePoint. We may have talked about this like years ago. This process has been in place for them for probably three or four years now, where as they move certain jobs that they're working with through the internal workflow, so, so through their internal process, they reach a point in time, and this could be over several years that it works its way through this process where they actually want to move an entire folder 
that contains all the files related to a job from one library to the next library to the next library. Move it down the assembly line. We could argue the validity of doing that in SharePoint and why you would not want to do that and all the issues I encountered, but it is working. As part of that, we are using... Moving a 1,000 files that can contain multiple gigabytes from one SharePoint site to another SharePoint site is not an easy task. A folder to a folder within a library works great. Site to a site does not. So we're actually using ShareGate with a hybrid worker process to issue a copy command to copy it from one site to another because ShareGate does way better than anything Microsoft has. But it doesn't do a move. Which is interesting. (laughs) You think think there'd be an API to enable that, but nah, whatever. That in and of itself is very interesting. But it does a copy. ShareGate doesn't have a move. So we do a copy and then a delete. Well, if that server goes rogue, we were missing some error checking and the copy did not run, but the following step to delete did run. So instead of copying from location A to location B and then deleting from location A, it tried to copy, failed, and then just deleted from location A. Just missing like a little conditional right. check or something. Missing there. a like, little hey, conditional did I, did- did I actually finish? Right. Did I do what you thought I was going to do? Did this job run successfully? Did it actually hit the hybrid worker? Was the hybrid worker on? All that type of stuff. So for like, a, it happened over the course of like two or three days. I think it was deleting these folders without doing the copy. So they all fortunately ended up in the recycle bin. That being said, Undeleting a thousand files, or in this case, 10,000 files from the recycle bin, is not something Microsoft makes easy, especially when there's folders within folders. One, I am not going to go through a recycle bin and scroll through and individually select 8,000 files or 10,000 files and even try to find the right ones because the only way you can find them in the recycle bin is by looking at the URL and making sure you have the right URL. And then you're looking for certain folders or subfolders. There is a PowerShell script, and this is what I was waiting to run to undelete stuff from the recycle bin, to do a restore item. You're thinking about kind of the PMP method, get a context to the web and just basically go to that recycle bin and just boom. Pull back yeah, everything, loop through it. Approach. Yes, look at the URL, and then you do a restore item if the URL matches. It worked by and large. I actually had a content type that inherited from a folder. I did not worry about this because it wasn't super important in this particular scenario. But if you try to restore an item before you restore the folder, it just creates a normal folder and it doesn't actually restore the folder. And then when it tries to restore the folder, that's actually a content type. It throws an error because the folder's already there. So if you really wanted to write this well, you'd have to restore all of your folders first but restore them in the right order from the highest down to the lowest level to make sure you kept all the properties and the metadata and the content type and all of that. Mm -hmm. It's a pain to do this. Again, for this scenario, I didn't care. The really one I only cared about was the top level, and I just let it go wild if it created a folder. If it erred because the folder was already there, I let it error, and then I just switched the content type at the root level and just put the metadata back on. This took a surprisingly long time. For about 800 <laughs> files. It's a lot of API requests, like going back and forth, like even just the initial like enumeration. It's, yeah, I mean, you think about it, like each one of those is effectively like an HTTP request, takes time, has latency, you might inject additional logic, you have the overhead of auth and all the other 
there's a bunch of stuff that goes into it that isn't like readily apparent. You're like, oh, I just I need an easy button, right? And I'm kind of surprised there isn't an easy button at this point. But I don't think the scenario of hey, I deleted ten thousand objects, like whatever it happens to be, is probably not like a high order bit. Probably not super common. No. And the other thing you can hit, because I absolutely hit it, is if you try to do them all at the same time or do them all sequentially, it takes. So it took about a hundred an hour to restore like eight hundred files. So ten thousand files. You're looking at ten hours. I got <laughs> throttled. Microsoft did not appreciate me hammering away at that API on that site for 10 hours straight. And they started getting throttled because I would go try to visit the site to see, are these showing up or not? And I was getting messages in the browser about being throttled. I was like, yeah, I cannot load this page. And if you go look at the URL, it's the whole throttling thing. And now you've done it. To your point, Microsoft does not make this easy. I'm really hoping, so they have, and we talked about it before, some of the backup stuff coming to Syntax later this year. Ideally, in this scenario, I think this is one where having a backup or restore tool could potentially make this quicker. I don't know. I don't know what the APIs look like there. If you have a backup tool and you go through and select your top-level folder and do a restore, if that will speed it up or if when Microsoft comes out with their backup and syntax... I know initially, I think in that post, they said they're not going to have file or folder level restores. I think it's more going to be site level. But that would be, this is one of those scenarios where we talk about, and I've heard clients say it, ah, Microsoft's got everything backed up, it's highly available, they're prepared. Yeah, to a certain extent. But a scenario like this where it's in the recycle bin or had we not caught this right away and we had gone the 90 days, this is where you get yourself in trouble and... Torg in the Discord chat too, he said he has some users that mass delete directories trying to unsync libraries to their local PC. That one happens quite a bit. You can end up in the same scenario. I'm guilty of that one. I forget sometimes. It's yeah, it's tough. So I, I mean, I think you're doing the right things. The takeaway is you need to think about that stuff. Maybe you need to have a process to go and have an escalation path in your help desk for end users who delete stuff. Folks are familiar with the recycle bin. They know how to do self-service restores, all those kinds of things. There's only so far that somebody could go as a service provider to stop you from taking out a gun and shooting yourself in the foot. If you do, it's great. Here's how you're going to triage that and get yourself back. Yeah, You're just not going to walk straight ever again. It'll be fine. Scott, we're going all off the rails for politically correct this episode. We're shooting ourselves. We're boiling frogs, (laughs) beating horses. (laughs) All of it, yeah. Yeah. It's bad out there for body parts and animals today. That's that's all I got to say. Not a good episode for that. But no, I agree 100%. There are absolutely ways to shoot yourself in the foot with all of this and Get yourself in trouble and to your point, having a plan, how are you going to handle this? Even some sort of monitoring in place. That's another thing is how do you necessarily know when files are deleted? I don't know that I have a solution for this, but I have absolutely had customers call me before too and say this file was there yesterday or a week ago or two weeks ago. It's not there today. And it's been one, try to find it. Is it in the recycle bin? Sometimes it's <laughs> not been deleted. It's been moved. Mm-hmm. And I've used the audit log in Compliance Center. I was going to say, that's what you want to yep. do. You want to like, kind of like clap and wipe your hands and to the audit log, we go. Yes. You just had to hope you had the audit log on and that it was there and available for you. But And that you could find it because <laughs> we could also talk about the audit log search and the horrendousness of 
trying to put a path in to search for a certain file or folder, it is far from ideal in my experience and perspective. They're coming out with some new search capabilities. I think the new search is there now and the classic search is going away because this is the whole theme of Microsoft lately is we have new and we have classic, whether it's the audit log search or Microsoft Teams or any number of other things. So yes, that is when the audit log becomes your friend and hopefully you can get search to work and you have the data there. But that was my SharePoint restore and it is not fast. So still have to rely on PMP and ShareGate and hope for the best. That was it. But everything's back now. Everything is moving again. My jobs are running successfully and stuff is not being inadvertently deleted before it's moved. And it only took me running PowerShell all night long between getting throttled and just the time it took. Azure automation jobs have been updated. Logic's been updated. All is accounted for. That's that. That's that. All right. Well... We got time for, what do you think, one more? Do you want to throw in one more? I Oh, I have an announcement, but that's really quick. Should we do that at the end or should we throw that in now and then do one more? It's up to you. It's your show. Not really. You had one more. Okay, so really quick. ESPC, <laughs> the European SharePoint Conference. They sent me a LinkedIn message. So this is absolutely valid-ish. They have these community awards, they're Inspire Awards, where you can go in and do a nomination for best community contributor, best YouTube channel, best online courses, diversity leader award, tech trailblazer, wellness, mentorship, young female STEM award, and the best podcast, Scott. So they said they wondered if we would just let people know about this so people could go in and nominate all of those different people, help kind of get the word out about community people that you maybe know about, enjoy working with, can recognize some of those community members. And naturally, having a podcast, I think you should go nominate us for the best podcast, but I'm partial. If you don't nominate us, (laughs) I won't be hurt. But the link for this is, will be in the show notes. We threw it in Discord. So if you do want to go know somebody that's in the community, if you do want to maybe nominate our podcast, I already did it, Scott. I nominated ourselves and I put right in why we're the best podcast. And it was because I do it and it's my podcast and I'm very partial. (laughs) Yeah, they just asked if we'd help raise some awareness for people to go out and vote for these Inspire Awards and different people that are contributing to the community. Excellent. We'll throw that in and then we can do one more. Inspire away. Inspire away. Maybe we'll have to come back and revisit this one. I don't know how much of a rabbit hole it's going to send us down. Virtual machines in Azure. Use virtual machines in Azure. Oh, this one could be a rabbit hole. But we can do a longer up. We could do a longer episode today. I mean, it's up to you. It's your show. No, it's not. This one's yours. However it works out. No, we're going to do this. We're going to talk about this because this one is a kind of a big deal, I think. I don't know that it's a big deal. I think it's interesting because it's something that I've never really thought about and I've always taken for granted. Back to my question. Okay, so what is this? You use uh, virtual machines in Azure? Yes or no? Yes. Okay, great. Quite a few. Do you ever browse the internet from your virtual machines in Azure? Like maybe to go outside and download something, get access to external data that exists outside the purview, no pun intended, but outside the boundary of your VNet. So you're accessing information on the public internet. Maybe you go to Google, Bing, DuckDuckGo, things like that. 100% of the time, whether it's to download PowerShell modules or like you said, download software. I don't know that I've ever had a VM in my experience that doesn't. I know clients do, but yeah, I'm always using the internet for my VMs. Why else do you have a computer other than the internet? 100,000%. I do this as well. And I've never really 
thought about it. Like specifically the way that your virtual machines mm-hmm. automatically get outbound internet access and access to the public internet. So there's in Azure Virtual Machine Land, there's ways that you can privatize the traffic for your virtual machines, even from an outbound perspective. Like you could do forced routing, you could go through a NAT gateway, there's ways to route through SLBs. You can stand up your own public IP, and you can say, great, I have a PIP on this VM, and therefore the PIP is this, and outbound internet access is going to drive that way. But if you just go stand up a standard VM, it's, oh, I still get an bog standard VM, like any VM. Oh, I still get outbound internet access. So there's this really interesting update that came out on Azure Updates, and the notice is that default outbound internet access for virtual machines in Azure is being retired, and customers need to go ahead and transition over to a new method of internet access. So in the world today, and up until the time this retirement is driven all the way through in 2025, like it's a ways out, you got time, you just go create a VM and, and you have that access. In the future, that's not going to be the case. You are going to have to explicitly define your method of outbound internet access. And again, going back to things like stand up a NAT gateway, create a load balancer and have an outbound rule on that load balancer and then that load balancer gets a PIP on it, all that kind of stuff. Or just go ahead and directly attach a PIP over to your virtual machine. So I was trying to think like for the number of times that I create a virtual machine and I XX my way through it or I have just some like basic ARM templates like, hey, spin me up like an Ubuntu 20.4 LTS, blah, 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 so I can play with it and do something with it. Now I got to go back and adjust that stuff and <laughs> make sure that I actually have them figured in with things, pips in them. Like, hey, give me like a basic public IP and associate that with my NIC and get it going if I wasn't doing that already in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. So not like a massive change, arguably a good thing. Hey, like you get more control and you'll have more insight into what's going on. But it made me do a double take, like just going back thinking, like, huh, I've never actually thought about the way like default outbound internet access works. I always just took it for granted because usually the first thing I do is hop on a VM and then go download something. (laughs) Just reach out and and that's mine. And I will say, by and large, my VMs tend to have public IP addresses. Because most of the time, I'm just doing an RDP connection into them. I am not being super secure. I'm not going and paying for Bastion or just-in-time or any of those. I just put on a public IP address. I lock the RDP port or the RDP access on port 3389 down to my public IP address. So I don't have a ton that don't have a public IP. But I absolutely... A similar type of thing have clients where they're using Bastion to access everything and they don't put that public IP address on because they don't want that VM exposed to the internet on a public IP address. 100% and totally valid, right? Right. It's a great use case. And that's where maybe not a huge deal, but I think to the one that I'm using ShareGate on, the one that I'm using for this client to move files, 
it doesn't have a public IP address. I use Bastion, but I'm always going into it and downloading updates to the PowerShell modules, to the PNP commandlets, or grabbing a ShareGate update as they update it, stuff like that. And that particular client, they're not going to put a public IP address on it. I don't know that they necessarily want to from a security perspective, but that means they are going to have to go in and they may have some load balancers and Azure Firewall, something like that already. I'm actually not 100% sure, but they're going to have to go in then and reconfigure all of these different machines if we still want them to have internet access or some clients that do make it all privatized and they require you to VPN into Azure or be on the network and they're using ExpressRoute to access all their VMs in Azure. Like, I think some of those companies that maybe have large footprints in Azure and really have tried to privatize them. And to your point, when you're like, you lock this down and you're going to have to figure out another way to internet, I'm like, huh. I had your reaction like, I've never thought about that before. If I don't have a public IP, I can still get to the internet. That might be a fairly large change for some of these enterprises that have tried to lock it down, but maybe haven't had that huh moment that you and I just did of, I do still get to the internet with those. It makes me think that I need to go get hands-on with NAT Gateway, which I don't think I've done yet. I, I was trying to think a little bit, like, have I ever even deployed a NAT Gateway? And I haven't gone down that path so far. And I think NAT Gateway, like when you go read the docs, it's kind of the preferred way to to go down this path. Like, all right, let's start at the top, secure by default, blah, blah, blah. You start walking the line down and you get to outbound connectivity and all that stuff. And NAT Gateway is kind of the go-to thing. So maybe we'll have to go and play and, and get hands-on with that one. Because the other thing with NAT Gateway is it's not just for virtual machines. Well, I, I mean, it's for units of compute, like private compute. And the reason I'm being kind of cagey and saying units of compute, because there's potentially PaaS services that leverage virtual machines as like IaaS constructs, AKS, Azure Kubernetes Service, yep. do functions or web apps on an isolated plan and stand those kinds of things up. App services, you have VNet integrations and things like that, that come through. Even other like data and analytics services like Synapse, Databricks, all those things, like they can get on VNets and do some kind of basic injection and things like that. And those are all subject and would also work with something like a NAT gateway as well. So, yeah. So Sean is telling you it's super easy to set up. So if we go try this and we mess something up, Sean's going to laugh at us. If we mess it up, it's <laughs> going to be in, in your Azure subscription. It's be so it'll be Azure. fine. It'll be fine. No, we should. I haven't set up an ad gateway either. We'll do that one as a, a two to the cloud thing and just next next our way through it without any docs. Should, if Sean says it's easy, it's got to be easy. Yeah, what could go wrong? I mean, it's just something in Azure. We can always delete it and recreate it, right? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's hourly rate, so he, he can come back and fix it for us. That's okay. Fix it up. All right. Well, yeah, this one, interesting, like you said, you definitely have some time to go in and fix it, but it is one that I think is going to make people go, huh, and have to think through what this actually means for maybe some of their larger deployments. That's about it. That's it? We'll see if we need to come back and revisit that one. All right. We got through it. Look at that. We did. And we're not too far over our normal allotted time. So with that, another day, another week, another episode. Scott, oh, I should look. Just a minute. We're not going to hit it yet. 
Do you know a milestone we're about to hit, Scott? We're about to hit a milestone on this podcast. A milestone. Let me see. I'm on the back end. This is episode 356. That doesn't mean much to me. It just means that we've been doing this a long time. You have some weird download milestone or something in your head? I do. You got it, but I can't. Oh, there we go. Sign in. Let's go look. As of today, we have... All time. Friday, October 6th. Friday, October 6th. If you want to know the lag on how long it takes to get these out. <laughs> yeah, we have a little bit of a lag right now. We've kind of gotten ahead. So, But as of today, October 6th, we have 996,949 total show listens slash downloads since we started the show. Yeah, those are only the ones that come from the official stuff too. I think you get more out of... Spotify and Google and all that. If you would go include those, I see, and I think, I don't know if Spotify is included in these or not. I know YouTube listens are not. So we may have already crossed the threshold, but in our official stats tracker on the background, over the last six years, we have almost reached that million download mark. There you go. You'll have to buy you a cake or something. In how many countries do you think it's been downloaded in, Scott? Just random. This is random. 113. Oh, they got rid of my total view. I don't know. They used to tell me. <laughs> it's more than, oh no, there it is. 190 countries. Some of them only have one download because I don't know why. But we have been downloaded now in 190 countries across those million downloads. It's kind of fun just to go in and see. Not too shabby. Let me tell you, I would never be able to get to 192 countries. So in some strange, weird way, Scott, we have been in 190 countries, or at least our voice has been. There you go. So with that, go enjoy your weekend. That was my weird milestone, my almost milestone we've hit. And we will be back next week with some other topic about something that strikes our fancy. (laughs) (laughs) Very descriptive. All right. Thanks, Ben. All right. Thanks, Scott. If you enjoyed the podcast, go leave us a five-star rating in iTunes. It helps to get the word out so more IT pros can learn about Office 365 and Azure. If you have any questions you want us to address on the show or feedback about the show, feel free to reach out via our website, Twitter, or Facebook. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.